invite you to take your Bible now and open your Bible first to the book of Romans chapter 8 and then the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 1. As we said, uh, tonight I'm uh, starting a new uh, sermon series, a, um, a topical series uh, on the, um, a series of uh, on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, what we hope to do is uh, do um, a different, a little different head of doctrine each year. So we'll look at the doctrine of salvation, we'll look at the doctrine of the church, doctrine of man, doctrine of God, and, um, and hopefully take one of those a year, six to eight sermons probably per series, and put them maybe together in a packet of some sort that you, with some resources accompanying it, so you could use those possibly for uh, outreach or Bible studies, uh, maybe family devotions in some way, we could, uh, we'll add some things in. So we're kind of putting it together, it'll be on our uh, website uh, as well as it unfolds. And so um, that's, that's our goal, to, to start just looking at some of the basic uh, theology of the church. If you remember from our study in the book of Hebrews, that uh, there's, there's a, a loss of uh, enthusiasm for biblical truth, and there was a hardness, a dullness of hearing, and, and so the writer is con- concerned about that. Um, J.I. Packer said the Christian life is like a three-legged stool where you, you have a truth doctrine, and then you have the experience and grasp of those things by the Spirit of God through faith, and then the practice of those things. And if you remove any one of those three legs, well, you know what happens to a three-legged stool when you knock out a leg. Uh, It becomes very, very unstable, and that there are many Christians uh, who are living unstably in their Christian life because um, they don't have theological truth. I think the evidence of that is overwhelming, that uh, this is not a day where there is great um, zeal for the truths of God's Word. So let's uh, just begin reading Romans chapter 8 as we start looking at this topic of the doctrine of salvation, the order salutis, the order of salvation particularly. One of the most classic places we find that is in Romans 8. I'm going to start at verse 28, um, but I'll notice, notice particularly verse 29 and 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then you see here this, this chain with these various links, this chain of redemption. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Looking specifically at the doctrine of union with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, as we go through these verses, just look at all the times he mentions in Christ and all the blessings we have in him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh Lord our God, I pray that tonight your spirit would come and give us insight to see the wonderful things you have for us in your word. Uh, Lord, help us to see the wonder of our Savior and the gospel. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would just do your work among us. This is, uh, when you speak, Lord, you speak with a purpose, uh, a purpose that will always be fulfilled. And we ask you would accomplish your purposes then this evening here. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're familiar with uh, the Apostle Paul, and it wouldn't just be Paul, Peter as well, but Paul um, often speaks about the danger of uh, false teachers and the necessity for the church uh, to be built up in its faith. And when he talks about that, he's not talking primarily about the urgency of their faith, but a grasp of the content. And so he'll pray uh, in his letters, often beginning, I, I, I pray for you that you might be filled with the knowledge of God. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, there's always some uh, prayer, there's some reference in his prayers for the church as he begins these letters that they would, they would grasp and know and grow in an understanding of the things of God. Philippians 1.9, uh, we pray that your love may abound with knowledge and discernment. And so when, as Paul uh, would, would start these churches, he would teach them the truths of Scripture. And then when, he, when he writes his letters, they're packed with truth, doctrine, teaching about the nature of Christ, the nature of, of the gospel, and what the church is, and how it's to be, uh, how it's to be ordered. Uh, and as I said, uh, one of the great needs of our day is um, the need for discernment, theological, doctrinal understanding, so that there's discernment. If you look at the best-selling books in the Christian book industry over the last 10 years, uh, what they scream is, no discernment, no discernment, no discernment. How do you get a book like Your Best Life Now? Something so fundamentally contrary to everything you read in the New Testament, and yet it sells millions of copies. How does that happen? Because it sounds good to people, to people who are Christian, people who go to church. And so they pick it up, and they read it, and they think that sounds interesting. And The Shack is another example, and uh, I could just go on and on and on. And so we're not living in days where uh, the knowledge of the Lord is covering the earth as the water covers the sea. The knowledge of the Lord uh, runs very shallowly in our day, in our uh, cultural, uh, in our um, Christian climate today. Well, how, are we gonna, how are we going to um, change that? Well, the way we change that is by studying the Word. Uh, the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, and they examined the scriptures to see if what the, the apostles were saying was uh, actually true. I'm, I'm excited to, um, to begin this series with you. I think uh, we're going to find how incredibly relevant uh, the truth of God's word actually is. You just think about the, the 
cultural, societal chaos that's taking place in our culture right now considering the idea of gender and sexuality. Uh, how are, is the church going to be able to stand? How are our young people? If you look at the evangelical world at, at large, you'll find that the, uh, the, young, the younger generation is just caving on sexual issues in terms of, of, of holding to a classic uh, Christian biblical perspective on human sexuality and what it means to be human. Well, how do you, how do you, um, how do you change that? And, and what happened there? Well, what happened there is, is that these young people were not taught anthropology, a biblical doctrine of man. So that when, that when uh, being part of the culture, when they, when they hear things come down the pike that just sound reasonable and seems to make sense, and when there's a certain threat of standing against that stream, well, they're just not going to stand. And in a sense, it's not their fault. They weren't taught. And so we want to, uh, we want to teach ourselves. We want to grow in these things, not so that we become um, you know, puffed up, um, but so that we know the things of God. And knowing them, we, uh, our faith in Christ is, is deepened, our, uh, our obedience is strengthened, our hope and assurance in Jesus Christ is built up. Uh, that's fundamentally what we're doing. I'm not just trying to pack your head full of interesting factoids about uh, biblical ideas, but uh, I'm convinced that theology, true biblical doctrine, drives us to a deeper love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about this series as we look at the doctrine of salvation. Now, some of you, uh, when you hear the word theology, um, you, um, you just get a cold chill, maybe go through your body, maybe you have um, flashbacks to uh, being trapped down in damp, dimly lit church basements on beautiful fall afternoons, uh, having the Heidelberg Catechism pounded into your head. Um, I did that, and I remember looking out the little window and seeing how beautiful it was outside, and here we were uh, doing stuff that seemed to have not have any remote relevance um, to what was actually happening out there in the world. And there are a lot of people in Grand Rapids who um, had that, that sort of experience, and when they got out of a catechism and they graduated from high school so they don't have to do that stuff anymore, they didn't do that stuff for the rest of their life because they got a bad taste in their mouth. And Grand Rapids is full of, full of that. And so I hope if that's you uh, tonight that you'll calm down, uh, maybe go get a drink of water, it's going to be okay. We're just going to open the Bible and see what God has to say about magnificent things. And so tonight we're going to start with uh, the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology is the proper word if you're uh, taking notes. <coughs> Looking at specifically the order of salvation. The order of salvation. There are two ways of looking at um, the doctrine, the truths of salvation. One way is to look at how, did it, how was it accomplished? What did Jesus do? What did God do in Christ in order to accomplish the salvation of sinners? And so you'll look at atonement. You'll look at propitiation. You'll study Christ's death on the cross. And um, how, how does that work? And why did that accomplish what it accomplished? So you're, in a sense, you're looking at what Jesus did. Well, another way of looking at it is, okay, so that's how God accomplished redemption in Christ. Now, how does he apply that accomplishment to the lives of individual people, to sinners, individual sinners? How is, how is the work of redemption now pressed home into the lives of individuals um, so that they actually are saved and saved to the uttermost? What's that about? Well, that's what we're looking at. And so we'll be talking about things like election and calling and um, regeneration and faith 
and we'll talk about justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification. And if those words just seem really sort of strange to you and a little bit intimidating, again, we're just going to open the Bible and see what it says about these things and, and make them clear. Todd Hooks, Isaac has been leading the class on this, sort of priming the pump, and, uh, and hopefully by the, the two of us together can give a, a well-rounded picture about uh, these things. Um, our, our desire, again, is that we, we grow in our faith and grow in our love for God and I think in, in, in our love for Christ. And I think that tonight's um, uh, message about the union with Christ uh, it hopefully is, is helpful to you in that. When we, when we talk about the order of salvation, we're talking about, well, theologians will talk about the chain of redemption. We read about that in Romans chapter 8, that there's this there's this chain, in a sense, with individual links. Those whom he called, he, those whom he foreknew, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul doesn't have all the links in there. Right? In, in Romans chapter 8, he's just trying to explain, God has done this and this and this and this, so that the person who was predestined, the, first, the person who was known and loved and chosen in eternity past, that very same individual will inevitably end up finally, ultimately glorified in the presence of God. Uh, that the, not a single person who was chosen in eternity past will not arrive in eternity future in a new heaven and a new earth. The chain holds because God does all the work. Well, tonight we're going to start with the union with Christ, which if you know your theology, and uh, you'll recognize, well, that isn't really one of the links of the chain, and you're correct. A union with Christ is not like justification, sanctification, glorification. It's not one of the links. <clears throat> Union with Christ is the chain. Uh, it's, it's the whole thing. It's what salvation is. Uh, it's not just one piece of it. Uh, it is the chain. The benefits uh, of salvation, uh, justification, sanctification, adoption, all those things, you could say those are the trees and Jesus is the forest. Calvin would say that salvation is Christ clothed with his gospel. Salvation is Christ clothed with his gospel. Salvation is being united to Jesus. And every link in the chain then is in some way or other related to that overarching ultimate reality. So it, to be elect is to be given to Jesus. To be regenerate is to be made alive with Jesus, given the life of Christ. To be justified is to be given the righteousness of Jesus. To be sanctified is to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. To be glorified is to enter into the glory and honor of Jesus as you see him face to face. It's all about Christ. And so the point that we're going to see tonight is... To be a Christian is to be someone who is in Christ. That's the definition of a Christian. Uh, I handed an outline uh, that maybe is helpful to you as we, as we go through. But let's just give our attention to this wonderful doctrine of, the union, of union with Christ. Um, my first point is just that this is what it means to be a Christian. It's the definition of a Christian. Uh, we, um, if, if you maybe know this, but the word Christian only shows up three times in the Bible. Shows up uh, in uh, Acts, um, 
And twice, Luke refers to Christians, where uh, the believers were first known as Christians in Antioch. And then uh, Agrippa says to Paul, uh, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in such a short amount of time? And then Peter mentions it once as well. But that's it. The overwhelming preferred term for a believer in the New Testament is saint. A saint, a sanctified one. And Paul uses that term 42 times. It shows up 82 times in all of Scripture. 42 of them uh, are the Apostle Paul. Well, what does it mean to be a saint? What is a saint? And, and the definition of a saint is someone who is in Christ Jesus. So Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Romans 16, 7 is interesting. I think you have that in your outline. Greet, this is Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Uh, so here you th- there's, a, there's a something called in, being in Christ. And Paul says, they got in before I did. It's like, boys and girls, if you go swimming and you show up in the backyard and there are people in the pool already. They got in the pool first. Well, Paul is saying these brothers were in Christ before uh, he was in Christ. Now, why does it matter that we would define a Christian as someone who is in Christ? Well, I think it, it matters uh, because it changes how we think about ourselves and how we think about um, becoming a Christian. If I would ask you tonight, how would you define a Christian? What would you say? How do you describe, how do you define a Christian? I think many of you would say a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. It's not a bad answer, but of course the devil believes in Jesus too. And there are all sorts of people in, the, in our culture who say they believe in Jesus who are not Christians. And so uh, it's true, it's, but it's, not, it's probably not the best answer. Maybe some of you would say, no, I mean someone who's been born again. Someone who's been regenerate by the, <coughs> by the Holy Spirit and the, has received the benefits. And, and again, that is true, and that's a better answer. But it, it still is missing a, a more foundational aspect of, of uh, what it means to be a Christian that is all over Scripture and that we so often just miss. We so easily miss the, the fact that to be a Christian is foundationally and essentially to be in Jesus. And bad things happen when we forget that. We are reading in our uh, Bavink group, just a, a group of guys uh, reading through uh, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. And one of the things uh, that uh, happens in the church is that the uh, Christians start talking about being a Christian in terms of the benefits received from Christ rather than the privilege of being in Christ. So um, being a Christian comes to mean someone who believes certain things about Jesus and has received certain things from Jesus, justification, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, etc. Now, why would that be a problem if people are focused on, uh, on, on what they believe and what they receive? Well, th- uh, let's use marriage as an example or an illustration. There are two ways to be married. Uh, One way is to enjoy the benefits of marriage. The other way is to enjoy the person you're married to. And it's not the same thing. Some of you guys are saying, look at the time. It's not the same thing. 
And we all know it's not the same thing if you're in that sort of a marriage. The man who thinks in terms of the benefits, and women can do this as well. I don't want to be uh, sexist here. Um, the, but, the, but the person who thinks of their marriage in terms of the benefits, it's not that they're all wrong. right? If, if you're married to a great wife, it means you, you ought to be truly, deeply appreciative that, that she's a great companion, she's a great mother, great cook, great housekeeper, takes care of the books. I mean, what's not to like? It's great to be married to a wonderful woman. And there's wonderful benefits to being married. And the same for being married to a wonderful godly man. But we sense that the man or woman who thinks of marriage primarily in terms of benefits received doesn't understand what a marriage is. Marriage is not simply a contract where you enter into so that you can pull the lever and get the benefits. It is an engagement with, a union with a person. And that a, a marriage then is to find out who this person is and to enjoy this person and to love this person. Paul does not say in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, appreciate your wives. It's husbands, love your wives. And love her so much that you, you give yourself for her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What is going to move you to die to self? It will not be an appreciation of the benefits. If you think of marriage primarily in terms of the appreciation of the benefits, when the benefits don't show up, you won't die to self. You'll ask the question, where are the benefits? What happened to the benefits? Well, um, that's, that's just not a healthy, wholesome some marriage. Uh, you won't be moved to, to, to love and move towards your wife or your husband to really understand them. You won't be moved to die to yourself in order to bless them and to serve them. And, and truth be told, that describes the Christian life of many of us, right? That we deeply appreciate what Jesus has done. We, um, we, can, we can list the things that Jesus has done. But it's a stretch to say that we love him, that we cherish Jesus, and, and that we, we yearn for times of communion with him, and uh, that we, we hunger for worship, and we're eager for devotions, and we're happy to die to self, and, and we want to die to sin so that we can please Jesus. I think many of us would say that's not um, how I would describe my Christian life. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it so hard for many of us to have a rich devotional life? Why is it that in Grand Rapids, West Michigan area, that the Dutch community has not been known for personal piety? We're known for other things. We can, we can build organizations and institutions. Um, we're, we're known for uh, knowing um, theological truth. We're known for having kids. Uh, we're known for, for many laudable things, but the Dutch Reformed community in West Michigan is not known for personal piety. And I, I say that as a, uh, someone who grew up here and um, can testify that personal piety was absolutely not on our list. Why? So I just, I'm just asking the question, why? I remember uh, when I was in high school having a conversation with my dad about uh, a conversation he had had with his brother, who was an elder at a, a church in another Dutch Reformed denomination. And they were talking about uh, the um, young people coming to make professions of, profession of faith and the questions that the elders would ask these young people. And my dad asked his brother, 
Well, do you ever ask them if they love Jesus? And his, and his brother was somewhat surprised by the question and said, well, no, we don't ask personal questions like that. You see, there's a, there was an assumption that Christianity is primarily about what you believe about Christ and the benefits then that you receive from Christ. It's not primarily about knowing Christ. It's not primarily about loving Christ, about being devoted to Christ and hungering for Christ and enjoying fellowship with Christ. Those categories just weren't functioning in my childhood growing up. And for many of you that grew up, I think you would, you would agree. I don't remember anyone in my peer group growing up all the way through high school, where there was a noticeable devotion for, uh, love for, delight in Jesus. We were church kids. We were not Jesus kids. In fact, um, we heard about Jesus people. So I'm a young kid in the 70s when the Jesus movement, remember the, some, of you are, some of you are too young, but uh, the Jesus movement, these, these hippies with long hair out in California who... I mean, they were crazy people. They went and talked about Jesus to everybody. They worshiped even when it wasn't on Sunday. They just were fanatics in our minds, okay? Now, the, the charismatic movement um, has its issues, but you don't want to fault people for being like a little over the top about Jesus. And yet, I did. I remember, I remember doing it and having conversations with cousins where we just shook our heads at these Jesus people. So, so you can see where this matters. Um, how you think about being a Christian is going to affect the way you experience your Christian life. Let me shift gears a little here. And just to note that in the New Testament, when it talks about believing in Jesus, there's an interesting discussion here, but, the, but um, it's at least worth knowing about that the, the, the preposition used in the Greek can be translated into, not just in. So there's two Greek words for in. Um, one means like, I'm going to go into a room. I'm going to go in the room. The other is, uh, speaks more about participation in. Uh, the Greek uh, preposition is ace. And that's what you always find when it's talking about believing in to Jesus. Thayer says, uh, his Greek-English lexicon, it's a movement toward a participating in. So we can translate John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes into him should not perish but have everlasting life. And of, of, in, I didn't find any, and I, I didn't research all of them, but many of them, um, when it speaks about believing in his name, it's into his name. And that fits with Paul's uh, understanding of a Christian being in Jesus. It's a moving into the reality of Christ, his person and his work. So that means that we just need to, we need to shift a little in the way that we think about how to become a Christian. It's common for people to say, oh, how do I become a Christian? Well, you need to invite Jesus into your heart is a common answer. It's not a biblical answer. It's not the worst answer, but you'll never, you don't find that anywhere in Scripture. That, that in, in fact, the primary uh, way to, uh, of thinking and talking about becoming a Christian is not about getting Jesus into your life. It's about getting your life into Jesus, getting you into Jesus' life. That's the movement that has to happen. You've got to come out of your bondage, out of your sorrow, out of your night, into the freedom, the righteousness, the joy, the peace, the life 
of Jesus. It's a, it's a completely different way. It's not something that you add to yourself. It's, in a sense, dying to yourself. So Paul says, I died. It is not me anymore. Christ who lives in me. And so there certainly is communion with Christ as his spirit comes, the spirit of Christ and dwells within us. But the category, what, what, what that is, is uh, it's, that happens to people. Jesus lives with people who are in him. I think that's a, that's a very helpful way of thinking about being a Christian. Uh, the Bible's definition of a Christian is someone who by God's grace, by God's power, through the gift of faith, has been taken out of themselves, out of their, uh, their deadness, out of their, their sin, their, their wickedness, their condemnation, and has been brought into the light and life of the glory of God in, in the person of Jesus Christ. You've been put into Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Let's define that term. I'm not going to camp here because we'll be spending more time in this uh, as we go through in the series. But it means, we can just highlight two things quickly. It means corporate representation and organic union. Corporate representation just means boys and girls, you, um, you have a first name and you have a last name. Right? First name, last name. That means that you're not just an individual, you belong to a, an, a corporate identity that's larger than you. You belong to a family. And what happens uh, to the family happens to you. If your family lives at a certain address, well, because you belong to the family, you're going to live at that address. Um, if your family has certain genetic traits, you're going to have those genetic, you're going to be boys and girls... Um, uh, maybe you're going to be very tall. Maybe you're going to be very fast. Maybe you're going to be really smart. Uh, those aren't things that you did for yourself. That happened because you were just born into this family. Well, to be a Christian, it's the same idea in the sense that to be placed into Christ means that it's not just me, the person. It is, um, I become someone who, who has become part of a corporate reality in Jesus Christ. He's become my, my head. And the things that are true of him become true for me. One of the great Old Testament illustrations of this is David and Goliath. So here you got, boys and girls, remember David and Goliath? And uh, Goliath is this great, big, huge, mean monster of a man. And all the Israelites are terrified of him. And there he stands, this great, big, mammoth man with his huge spear. And he, and he challenges Israel to send somebody out. And there's not a single man in all of Israel, the whole army, who has the nerves to go face Goliath. Except for this one little scrawny kid named David. He's just a young guy, and his armor doesn't even fit, Saul's armor. But David has the courage, because he believes in God, to go out and face Goliath. And you know what happens? He takes the stone, and Goliath gets struck right in the head and falls down, and David goes, and what does he do? Cuts off his head. It's kind of gross. That's what he does. It is complete victory. And then what happens? All the Israelites go running and chasing and defeat the Philistines. You see, when David won his victory, he won it for all of Israel. When Goliath was defeated, the Philistines were defeated because David and Goliath stood as the representatives of their, uh, uh, of their armies. Uh, same in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ conquers on the cross, 
Everybody who's in Jesus conquers. So that's the corporate representation. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so everybody that's just born a natural human being, in Adam we all die. And not just die physically, but we've died spiritually in Adam. But even so, all those in Christ shall be made alive. So to be in Christ means that you've, Christ has become your corporate representative. What happens to him, what is true for him, becomes true for you. You're part of his family. Where he lives, you're going to live. His victory is your victory. But it also means organic union. I mean, it just means that you've been united to Christ. John 15 is the classic text. I am the vine, you are the branch. It isn't, isn't just some legal things that have happened to you where you've gotten adopted into a new family. There is true life-giving union with the person Jesus. And Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And we see that all of the gifts then that come to us in salvation all come because of that organic union with Jesus Christ. Well, we see that in, in Ephesians chapter 1. And, and uh, you have that there in your, in your outline. Just to quickly go through that, uh, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he lists uh, election, verse 4, we were chosen in him. He lists, um, he has blessed us in the beloved, verse 6. We have redemption in him, verse 7, the forgiveness of trespasses in him. Uh, 11, we have attained an inheritance in him. Uh, 13, we've received the promised Holy Spirit in him. Just over and over and over, in him, in him, in him, all the blessings. The blessing of justification. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sanctification. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, let's wrap this up. What difference will this make? What difference will it make? Well, it's going to change about how you think about uh, what it means to be a Christian. You might um, think of yourself as a, um, a church person. You might think of yourself as a, a moral person. Um, you might think of yourself as a saved person, a reformed person. And all of those things I hope are true. But, but if you read the letters of Paul, particularly, <clears throat> Paul thinks of himself as a Jesus person. Paul thinks of himself as a Jesus person. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. To live, Paul would say, is Christ. To live is Christ. It's going to change how you think about yourself as a Christian. It's going to, it's going to affect your assurance as a Christian. If salvation really is a matter of, of being united to Jesus Christ, and, and if that union happens immediately and fully the hour you first believed, then that means that every child of God immediately, immediately upon union with Christ by faith has all the benefits of Christ. You're not, you're not a partial Christian. You're not halfway in, halfway out. Either you are in Christ or you're not in Christ. If you are in Christ, everything in Jesus is yours. And by virtue of the fact of your being united to him. 
And if you're not a Christian, you see, if you're not in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how uh, you're trying or, or, or the um, religious practice you're involved in. If you're not in Jesus Christ, none of the benefits are yours. But if you if come to God in faith and confess your sin and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, I want to know Jesus, uh, the Bible says that is a gift from God and that, that faith unites you to his son, Jesus. It unites you to his person and his work. His obedience now is your obedience as your righteousness. His death on the cross was, was your death. The condemnation of God poured out him on Jesus in your place so that you've died and the law has nothing to say to you anymore. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 7. The law's, the law's been silenced You've died to the, you, 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 you don't file lawsuits against dead people. Even if they've, it's, you can prove that they broke the law. No, no, they're, they're, they're gone. The law can't reach them. And that's what Paul says is true of a Christian. The law of God cannot reach you if you have been dead and buried with Jesus Christ. And now that you've been raised with Christ, you've been raised with this new life. That will never, ever die. You see, if, if you start thinking of, the, um, of being a Christian as being united to Jesus Christ, first of all, that, that, that to, to, receive, to, to receive salvation is to receive Christ and all of his benefits. Instead of just being thankful for the benefits that he brings, you'll love the Savior You'll love Jesus. I hope that makes sense to you. If, if to be a Christian means to come to Christ, to be a Christian means to receive Christ, Jesus the person, and, and, and then all the benefits that flow from him, then you'll love Jesus. You couldn't possibly come to Jesus to be saved. You couldn't possibly come to Jesus to be given a righteousness not your own, to be rescued from the wrath of God, to be made an heir of heaven, an adopted child of God, a bride of Jesus Christ himself. You, that can't happen to you if you understand what's happened without you loving Jesus. It changes, I think, how we think about Jesus himself and, and our relationship to him. It helps us to understand that grace is not a thing that Jesus dispenses. Grace is Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson has a little, a little piece on this in uh, um, one of his, uh, I read an article of an interview, and he just points out that um, you know, we talk about receiving grace and we talk about means of grace. And he says, that's fine as long as we remember that there's not a thing, a substance called grace that sort of gets dispensed and, and, and sprinkled on us or put into us somehow. It's not a, grace isn't a thing. He says, um, there's no thing called grace that Jesus takes from himself and then, as it were, hands over to me. There is only Jesus himself. So grasping that thought can make a significant difference in a Christian's life. While some people might think this is just splitting hairs, um, it can make a vital difference. It's not a thing that was crucified in order to give us a thing called grace. It was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that was crucified in order that he might give himself to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that is grace. 
Grace is receiving Jesus, a gift of God that you could never possibly earn. And friends, that'll, that'll change your life. And you'll uh, begin to understand uh, what it means to love Jesus. It'll, it'll, it'll give you a dignity and an identity as a, as a person because so often we look at our failures, we look at our sin, um, all the things that we're not. But you see, if you're, if, if to be a Christian is to be united to Jesus Christ, that becomes your identity. I'm in Jesus. I partake in his life. I wear his righteousness. I'm a child of his father. I'm a joint heir of his riches and glory. I belong to him. That's why I carry his name. It'll affect how you think about growing in holiness. That it doesn't happen any other way than by abiding in Jesus. And all the means of grace, word, prayer, preaching, all of that you see is a coming to Jesus. It's coming to abide in Jesus. And Jesus promises, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Because he's the vine, we're the branch. It'll give us confidence in prayer. Jesus says, John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you belong to him in that way, you've been united to Jesus Christ in that way, you can go to the Father with absolute confidence because you come in Christ. You come with all of his person and work. Uh, and, and that's what you bring. Nothing of yourself, but you bring you bring. The reality of your union with Jesus Christ. Father, I come as your child. I come as a blood-bought child um, of God. I, I come as someone who belongs to Jesus. Elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. Brought, pulled and brought into Christ, contrary to my will, uh, my natural self, all by the power of God when you gave me the gift of faith and, and you justified me, declaring me righteous before the throne of God. And your work sanctified me and you promised one day to glorify me. That's who comes to you, Father, in prayer. I hope that as we go through this series, you'll uh, begin to get a, a sense of how rich and profound and deep and beautiful um, our salvation really is. It's not, a, it's not a shallow, plastic, thin thing. It's, it is deep and rich and robust and profound because, you see, our salvation is Christ Jesus himself. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, let's live and walk in that truth. Amen. <clears throat> oh, God in heaven, what an amazing thing you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, we confess that we have thought too little about the preciousness of being given to Jesus and belonging to Jesus, being identified with Christ, being placed in Christ so that he is our life and he is our righteousness and he is our redemption, he is our peace. He's the lover of our soul. We belong to him. Oh God, help us to love Jesus, to truly love Jesus and to love him more and more so that we fall out of love with our sin and out of love with ourself and that we more and more can say to live as Christ, to die as gain, for that will be to see him face to face. Father, this evening I just pray that you would direct every one of us in these things, wherever we are in our, in our walk. Maybe we're not converted and we, we sense that we need this Jesus. Maybe we've been... A, in the church a long time, but we can confess we don't, we don't know what it means to love Jesus. 
Or maybe we did in the past and we've forgotten and you've, the Holy Spirit is calling us back tonight. Maybe we're in deep sorrow and uh, deep trial and the troubles have clouded our view to the glories that belong to us. And so Jesus, we come and, and ask that you'd help us to see, help us to believe, help us to live in this, this wonderful comfort that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And may that change how we think, how we feel, how we live until we see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.